Welcome to the Tradfest podcast, brought to you by the Temple Bar Company. Hello from Temple Bar, Dublin.
That opening track was Five Drunken Landladies by Usher's Island, the group spearheaded by our guest on For Folk's Sake Today. I'm delighted to talk to musician, composer and producer Donal Lunny. Donal, thanks a million for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, Kieran. How are you doing? I- I'm doing fine, actually. How are you doing yourself? Strange times. Weird times. Uh, yeah, just sort of, I suppose, keeping the... Uh creative musical head above water just about you know but uh, definitely miss the uh, interaction with other musicians and the absence of performance it's a very important element i think for most musicians more so than people realized i think maybe more so than artists themselves might have realized as well because the more i've met in the last four or five months the more we're kind of realizing that 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 interaction even if it's not playing it's meeting them and having an understanding with them that's right. That's true. It's it's it definitely it's a, a two way street sort of thing, you know. Well, you've joined us here on the podcast, and we do appreciate your 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 company. And it's really difficult to know where to start. I'm looking at let's say Kate Bush, Mark Knopfler, Elvis <laughs> Costello, Planksty, the Body Band, Christy Moore, Frank Hart, Moving Hearts, Paul Brady, and Andy Irvine, Cool Finn, Mosaic, Atlantic Arc Orchestra. I'll keep going. Try it, <laughs> uh, Zodomo, uh, Usher's Island, and of course you've been working with Deary Farrell and the Kilfenora mm. Kelly Band. So where I've decided to start actually is. Before all of that, and it's hard to know that there's a lifetime before that, but there was, because you started, <laughs> you were born in Tullamore, which was one aspect that I, I, I was surprised at. Mm. Yes, that's true. Uh, we, uh, the family lived in Tullamore until I was five years old. And uh, after that, we moved to Newbridge. But uh, yeah, m- uh, my father worked in D.E. Williams, uh, who, who make Tullamore Dew. Then he worked in the ESP and afterwards he switched to Bordnamona. And uh, for that reason, we moved to Newbridge to be close to the action for him. Wonderful that that actually happened for you because then you met some with some people that were of a like mind musically. But where did your music actually come from? Uh, well, I suppose I, I the influences would have been fairly subtle. My mother was from Ranafast in Donegal and uh, she knew a lot of songs. Uh, my father was uh, an enthusiastic Gael Gore as well. He came from Enniskillen. But uh, my mother's first language till she was about 14 was Irish, uh, growing up in Ranafarsha. And um, so there were all these songs knocking around and various bits and pieces. Uh, and it was just a, a kind of process of osmosis, really. I didn't, uh, there was no big kind of, uh, what would you say, drive uh, on music in the house. I learned piano when I was five years old for about six months and uh, I wheeled me way out of it. I really didn't like it, <laughs> but uh, it actually it mattered a huge amount. I think it did something. It, it uh, created a foundation for the rest of my musical life just in that six months. I'm sure. And Frank, of course, your brother, you, you played a bit with him. He was your older brother. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Frank took up the whistle while I was uh, learning the guitar. And indeed, uh, <clears throat> we played together in a group very briefly uh, called the Rexy Kildare, which had Christy Moore as uh, one of the singers. Frank and Christy used to sing. And uh, we did about two and a half gigs together. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you finished on top, did you? <laughs> we, had, we had great crack because we used to, I mean, uh, we'd uh, travel out to Prosperous at the weekends and meet up with uh, uh, the Rins. 
out there, Davok and Andy Rain and uh, uh, the local musicians out in Pat Dowling's and Prosperous. And it was a brilliant uh, sort of stamping ground and a place to absorb the music and just to have pure crack. It was lovely. You mentioned uh, the song tradition. Was there an instrumental tradition in that area? Oh, absolutely, there was. Yeah, there was a sort of a very, uh, what would you say, informal branch of Colsus Kjaldori there. And uh, just, uh, uh, it was local musicians who would gather, the big pipes, whistle, fiddles, flutes, Bowron, Ned Farrell playing the Bowron, Davok Rin playing the tin whistle. Um, it was a very lively session and uh, plenty of great music played. Now, I played guitar at the time and uh, I also started learning the Bowron around then too. Yeah. Um, mm. Like lots of guitar players, maybe at that time, it was difficult to find uh, an entry to the traditional music scene. Was there any difficulties like that for you in Kildare? Uh, not in Kildare, no. But uh, when I uh, migrated to Dublin to, to go to art college, I started playing with different people in uh, in Dublin, with different groups and things. And uh, I met up with loads of musicians. And I do remember one time um, after a session, after a pub session, going to the Piper's Club and uh, with uh, the bowled James Keane uh, who had his mighty accordion and there were three or four more people there as well and we uh, sallied into the Piper's Club and found a, an empty room, sat down and proceeded to play and then somebody came in and said no guitars in here. You were indeed <laughs> yeah. there Donna. I tell you well I said, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Right, OK, I'll go. And James jumped up and he said, one out, all out. <laughs> so there was a march towards the door, but we were all called back and we were allowed to stay and whatever. But there was, you know, at the time, it was the guitar was kind of outside the uh, the, the, the limits. A uh, fantastic uh, individual, yeah. James Keane. Ah, yeah, a mighty man, brilliant man. I still so love playing with him, yeah. you, you came to Dublin because you went to the College of Art and Design. So life could have been very different for you because mm. uh, you, you, you studied to become a gold and silversmith. This is true. Uh, that was a kind of a default because um, while I was there, there was a, a strike, a student strike in the college. And uh, uh, we barricaded off half, half of the, the classrooms and... Um, <clears throat> Uh, so there was a sort of a, 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 a free area, if you like, down the back of the college. And one of the uh, one of the places we had access to was the metalwork room. So I continued do, doing my metalwork, which was like making sort of uh, bowls from copper and very fashioning various things out of metal. But uh, I, I got interested in um, like I began miniaturizing and I, I ended up making uh, jewelry. And so immediately after the after uh, art college, myself and sculptor Vincent Brown, not Vincent Brown, the journalist, but uh, Vincent Brown, the sculptor, we started a, a workshop together in Clare Street. And uh, um, we made uh, uh, sort of handcrafted jewellery for a couple of years. And it was brilliant. It was really, I loved it. And uh, it was interrupted by the uh, formation of Planksteen. I was so wondering what the lure was that took you away. Did you ever regret actually leaving that behind? Well, I regretted not uh, hanging on to some kind of a setup that I could, you know, have, say, in the corner of a room where I, if I wanted to, I could go over and make, make things. Um, I just, I moved on so quickly. I, I didn't have time to get back for it 
back to it for years. So it's just sort of withered away. But uh, I enjoyed it while I was doing it. Yeah. Now, at that time, or you know, certainly in the mid to late 60s, you played with a, a group called the Parnell Folk. That's right. With yeah. McMaloney and Sean Corcoran. That's right. And uh, there was a postman by the name of Dan Marr, who was no longer with us. Um, and uh, it was, a, it was a, a lovely band. And uh, the uh, material was interesting. Uh, of course, Mick was very you know, assiduous and how he collected songs and the same for Sean. So it, it, the, the quality of the material was there. It was very good. And that was while, while I was in college. But uh, that led on to another group that I was with, which I should mention, which was called the Am and Spiceland, because uh, Mick and Brian Bulger and myself were a, a trio called the Emmet Folk. And Brian and Mick Bourne, two brothers, uh, we went on from there. And so Emmet Spiceland thrived for almost two years. And we, we dressed very well. We had very elaborate hairdos. We qualified, I'd say, as uh, one of Ireland's first boy bands, even though we were singing traditional music. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Brian and Mick Byrne, it was Spiceland mm. Folk. Was that the name of their band? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. then the the two uh, amalgamated. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just trying to I'm trying to see you as the boy band there now from those early days. I must say. <laughs> By the way, was it the thing to do? Mm. Uh, I'm always curious about how people just form groups. Or was it the thing to do? You met somebody and liked what they were doing. You said, "Let's form a group." Or how how did that evolve for you? Um. It was usually circumstances that led from one thing to another. And uh, I mean, for instance, uh, uh, I suppose shortly after Emmett um, Spiceland ran its course, uh, I met Andy Irvine and uh, we just got on like a house on fire, pair of us. I loved what he did and how he played. And uh, I was still playing guitar at the time, but uh, we hung out together and we started, uh, we started playing and uh, he actually gave me my first bazooki. I was round in his house one afternoon and uh, I noticed this instrument lying in the corner under a pile of other instruments. And I pulled it out and started playing it and I uh, couldn't put it down. So he, he ordered me to go home and take it with me and keep it. Now, so, if, mm. if you did take that, then was the, was the tuning, was it, was it tuned for a right-handed player? It was, yeah. So did you adjust or did you just play it as, as you found it? I played it as I found it, but when I took it home, I reversed the strings. That's <laughs> why he wasn't looking at you. No, well, yeah, yeah, he did actually present it to me, which was very nice of him. Fantastic. So, well, that was the start yeah. of something different because there was like that mm. changed bazooki playing. I mean, I, did, I mean, there wasn't mm. a lot to change, I suppose, in traditional music at that time. Mm. But it changed the instrument in Irish traditional music because up to that time it was guitar. But you went further then because mm. possibly was the round back a bit awkward or why did you decide that you needed a different, uh, a modified instrument? It was on a whim, I have to confess. Uh, I went with uh, Andy to uh, uh, an instrument maker's uh, workshop in Kent in England, and uh, it was a man by the name of Peter Abnett, who made lovely guitars, banjos, and uh, various uh, stringed instruments. And one of the things he had was a, a five-string banjo, but with a wooden body. And uh, it had such a gorgeous tone. I thought, 
I wondered if he could make me a bazooki with the same kind of body as that. And, uh, you know, take the, take the specifications of the bazooki, which is what he did, and made a slightly larger body. And that was the first flatback bazooki. Um, you know, that, and it, 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 when people ask me what it was, I, I used to say it's, an, well, I've, it doesn't have a name, so it's an Irish bazooki. And uh, on it went from there. It certainly did, and mm. it is the accepted instrument now in traditional music, but people probably, that's what, that was the 70s? It was, yeah, beginning in the 70s, that's right. Yeah. So it's only in that length of time that that instrument has evolved in traditional music. By the way, the tuning of the one that you got from Andy, firstly, was it an eighth string or sixth string? Um, how was the tuning on it? Well, it was an eighth string. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and it was tuned in, uh, there were two octave strings on it. Uh, the two bottom courses had octaves, like a 12-string guitar, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I switched the strings, I decided to to put unison strings on the on the lower end, and it really beefed up the sound, and uh, just it it gave it a much more sort of if you like heart. It it uh, it lost its lovely silvery quality, uh, which the octave strings gave to it, but it became a much more sort of a muscular. Uh, instrument, if you like. It certainly uh, did that. I, yes. I, I ask you about that really because uh, Alec mm. Finn of De Donnan was playing that Greek style bazooki sort of right throughout his career. That's right, he was. And it was a three, three, uh, six string mm-hmm. one that he played and uh, he played it like nobody else played it. He was such an amazing player, Alec. Yeah, it's a good description actually, that silvery sound because that's yeah. kind of the way to describe it all right. Yeah, yeah, it was lovely. So what about Planksty then? Yourself and Andy kind of hit it off and where did Planksty evolve from in your development? Well, um, we were we we were doing gigs together just uh, on, a, on a kind of a casual basis and then we got the opportunity to start a little club down in the basement of Slattery's in Capel Street uh, which we called the Mugs Gig and because there wasn't a lot of money in it for the Mugs who play there. But it was absolutely delightful. It was it was really brilliant because uh, it was quite popular and people weren't trying to get rich playing there. They just came along for the enjoyment and played there. And uh, the Bowel Christie, who had been away for uh, the previous, I, I suppose, four, nearly five years in England, came back to make an album uh, um, which eventually became the album Prosperous. And uh, he approached Andy and myself and asked us, would we, would we uh, play on it? And he had a, a rounded up, uh, I think, nine or ten other you know, musicians altogether, including Liam O'Flynn. And uh, we recorded Prosperous and had a brilliant time doing it. It was just, it was quite magical. And we all knew that there was something, something quite special going on. So... Um, when Christy went back to sort of fulfil his the uh, remaining dates in his diary in England, and uh, then he came back over and and uh, suggested we form a band, and that was the uh, beginning of Planksty. And, and did did you expect that it was going to have the impact that it did? Not at all. No, no, no. It was a it was a quite that was quite remarkable. We, we the first thing we did, I think, one of the first things we did was. Uh, a tour, a six-gig tour with Donovan. And Donovan was, a, a, you know, a singer with quite a profile at the time. He was popular. He'd been in the, you know, he'd been in the charts and all that kind of stuff. And people 
people thought of him uh, in the same sort of a breath as Dylan, as Bob Dylan at the, at the time, like a solo singer, songwriter, guitar player kind of thing. Uh, although they were worlds apart in different ways. But uh, uh, we did this tour with Donovan and it was um, six fairly heavy duty gigs around the country, sort of from the stadium, City Hall in Cork, the Hangar in Galway, etc. And uh, it, it, we had a great success at it. In fact, we kind of, we slightly eclipsed Donovan in <laughs> on a few of the gigs and he was very, very gracious about it. He's a lovely guy, but uh, he didn't, certainly didn't begrudge us it. But we did, we, we, we went down a storm at several of those gigs and that really kicked us off, you know. I know when Andy joined us here on the podcast, he mentioned in particular the gig in Galway. I think uh, he had a, a moment mm. of realisation there after the, re the response of the audience. This is true. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was that. I still remember it myself. Yeah, it was, uh, it was phenomenal. And uh, so on we went from there. And indeed, it wasn't all plain sailing. We did a, a cinema tour uh, sometime after that. And... Uh, I can remember turning up in, I think it was Castle Blaney and there being seven people hmm. in the uh, in the audience in this 300-seater cinema. <laughs> so the gig didn't happen. But, uh, you know, uh, we eventually got going and it, it just uh, it took off. It and how did you organise yourself? Because this would have been very new for anybody in folk and traditional music in Ireland, like hmm. the idea of doing gigs and doing tours. So how did you organise yourselves? Well... Um, we did have a manager. We had uh, the lovely Des Kelly, who took us on, and uh, uh, who loved the band, and the band loved him. And uh, he sort of he organised us, and he set us up with a van and with a PA, and uh, so we were, you know, we were equipped for the road. I mean, at that time, it was just, I suppose, coming to the end of the show band era, you know. When um, indeed Des played, I think with the Capital Show Band, yeah, at the time, and there were hundreds of bands on the road, literally, um, who sort of went around and uh, you know did dances in all the towns all across the country every weekend, and uh, so there was a kind of a thriving music business going on. Now the trad end of it was fairly disorganised and. You know, the infrastructure was pretty fragile, if you like. There were some lovely gigs. And then there were other ones that popped up and that sort of withered away and popped up again and then were replaced by a disco and, you know, that kind of thing. I do. But there were, yeah, there were there were uh, uh, gigs that we uh, we played regularly. It was, uh, I remember, Chuck Forbo over in Galway, which was uh, a hotel owned by Bill Fuller, um, a venue there which regularly stuffed a thousand people into it and had great nights there. Played there with the Dubliners and various people, you know. And did Bill Fuller <clears throat> ever sort of mention bringing you to the States? Um, I don't think he did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he did. But, uh, uh, yeah, I suppose that could have happened all right, yeah. Yeah, just, uh, he was, a, he was a, a big name in the music promotion business at the time. I remember that. He would have... He would have qualified as an impresario. That's the word, don't we? Yeah. Did we yeah. ever think we'd be using it in relation to folk music or traditional yeah, music? Yeah, yeah. The bit was great. Yeah. 
Of course, yeah. Planksty yeah. ran its course. Uh, you you mm-hmm. did your number of years in Planksty. It did come back together again. But one of the next major, and it was a change from Planksty, but one of the next major driving forces in traditional music was the Bothy Band. Mm. So the thinking behind that, what was what was the thinking behind it? Um, again, uh, that was the sort of, if you like, the coming together of circumstances. Um uh, I I had uh, I had left Planksty and Pla- Planksty kind of had run its course I suppose uh, f- up to seventy four seventy five around then and uh, I met up with uh, Michal and Triana uh, O'Donnell and uh, they were performing at a Gaelin function I think it was the twenty fifth anniversary of Gaelin's foundation. And uh, they asked me to play with them, and I did, and loved it. And uh, I can't remember a lot about that particular gig, but we clicked straight off. And they were both involved with a band called Sixteen Ninety One, uh, which and that sort of uh, took in people like Tony McMahon, Liam Weldon, and I've forgotten the the total lineup, but it was a powerful band in its own right. But it had, uh, I'd, it it wasn't a sort of a like a going concern. It was just maybe something that happened for summer tours or whatever. I'm not sure. Uh, however, bit by bit we we got together, and uh, Matt Malloy came along, Paddy Keenan, and uh, uh, we we generally Tommy Tommy and uh, came in with Matt, Tommy Peoples, and uh, we we got going, and we just we. You know, we it kind of took, it took off. It it really it caught fire in us, and we wanted to make an album, all that you know. So Gwilin were very enthusiastic, but um, we were, if you like, encouraged to uh, start our own record company and uh, put out our own records, and that was how Mulligan was born. And um, that's what happened. We weren't the first albums that went out on Mulligan, but uh, soon after that. Uh, we we recorded our first album and uh, that took off as well. It was a very different band to Planksty in its way. It was because it, there was a greater focus on the instrumental tradition, let's say, within that band. That's right, yeah. Well, it was, you know, three players yeah. like Matt, Tommy and Paddy. Yeah. There was something uh, about them which um, it was almost like a, a challenge, but, you know, it, it, they kind of put it up to each other, I suppose, in, in ways. But it was beautiful. Oh, and fantastic uh, music. There was, there was something amazing about the the way they played together. And then Trina, Michal and, my, and myself, we were swept along by this. And we, you know, we had to answer. We had to put the, the motor underneath it as well, you know. So there was there was a, definitely a sort of a chemistry that, that caught all of us and, uh, uh, you know, fired up. Uh, the music in a um, very special way. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt it was very, very special because I know, let's say, for, for us that were just kind of getting going in traditional music, there wasn't a huge population of uh, young mm. uh, people playing traditional music, but when something like the Bothy Band came along, it just kind of it gave hope and a, encouragement and just desire too, I think, because mm. uh, there followed a, a host of different bands, of course, after the Bothy Band. Yeah, it's funny, you know, we we were doing our thing and uh, maybe not taking too much notice of that, of 
how we were in influencing people. It wasn't until years later that it, it, it that I realized that we had had a, a you know fairly serious influence on on music and how people went about it. You know, people. I, I remember being surprised when someone said, "Oh, the, the Bossy Band model," you know, meaning sort of the lineup uh, of of players like. And uh, that that uh, bands kind of follow the same pattern, and it's a logical pattern as well. You know, it's, it, it, like the pieces all fit together. When you consider, like uh, Trina was playing clavinet, and uh, she she actually supplied the bass end of the sound with the clavinet, um, and uh, then Michal and myself we split the rhythm between us. Uh, Michal more color and me more percussion. But uh, that was how it worked. And then you had the three musketeers up the front. It was uh, certainly an mm. incredible uh, um, grouping of mm. people. And it just seemed to sweep before it. Like it just, it caused a great stir in traditional music. And as I say, I think it opened up sort of avenues for people, even if they didn't have similar lineups to yourselves, it actually gave a credibility to people playing traditional music that wasn't there before that, for sure. Yeah, well... It's uh, easier to see from the outside. We no. just loved it. From the body band, it keeps yeah. going on. <laughs> it moved on to, to Moving Hearts. Again, mm. a, a different approach, a different approach to music, but, but tried music at its base, really. That's true. And uh, yeah, it, it was, although there was a, a, a powerful kind of, if you like, rock uh, chassis under the, <laughs> under the vehicle, um, uh, like it, the idea for it, uh, I suppose it it came from something that I had in my mind uh, for the that version of Planksty that had formed around uh, nineteen eighty, I think it was, uh, and uh, uh, I, I, we we had sort of branched out a little bit of people like uh, uh, Nolly Casey and. Uh, uh, Noel and Tony Lennon and uh, Noel Hill and Tony Noel Hill did a bit of recording, yeah. Yes, you know, uh, so the, we were spreading our wings a little bit, but I thought that Planksy would be great if it had a, a sort of a rhythm section, meaning a, a bass instrument and percussion. Uh, however, I, I only had this notion somewhere in the back of my mind, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it made sense in the kind of... Uh, in my thoughts about it, I could imagine it, but I couldn't actually, um, you know, it wasn't a double bass. It wasn't going to be a double bass. And it wasn't going to be electric bass and it wasn't going to be drums and it wasn't going to be congas and it wasn't going to be, you know, it had to be yeah. something else. Uh, and uh, I, I never did uh, crack that puzzle. But Christy came back to me uh, at, at one stage because, I mean, I, I had voiced my desire to do this to the band and they're all saying well hmm, let's let's wait and see uh, you know let's hear what you have in mind kind of thing and uh, I, I you know eventually christy came back to me and said you know what about that idea you were talking about and um, i just said you know it should be you know uh, i suppose uh, more rhythm more you know more percussion bass whatever he said right and he actually propelled it into existence mm-hmm. in a flash um, and one of the first people I think he contacted was Declan Sinner, who you know, Declan, being the amazing musician he is, there, there are very few guitarists in the country like him. Um, 
he immediately, you know, grabbed hold of what Christie was doing. And uh, um, I think very shortly after that, we we uh, acquired Owen O'Neill on bass and um, Brian Callanan on drums. And uh, on it went. Eventually, the, the full lineup of like Davies Spillane and Keith Donald came yeah. in. I suppose I think the driving force behind it was that Christie had uh, amassed a number of songs which just wouldn't fit into the Planxty repertoire. They would have been incongruous, they would have been out of place, they would have been, you know, uh, they just they just didn't suit. I mean, and they were they were the songs that that, that Moving Hearts became well known for, like Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Russian Roulette, and uh, the various other songs that, that Christie sang around that time, the early Moving Hearts time, like No Time for Love and other ones. They were just, they belonged somewhere else, you know, they were contemporary songs. Yeah, we had Jim Page on here, actually, on this podcast series very early on. He spoke about uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Russian Roulette, when he sang it at the festival mm. in Sligo there and how he got the, the reaction of people. Of course, it became a huge tune, mm. a song for Moving Hearts. By the way, Donald, just mm. checking here, the Bothy band, Moving Hearts, who named those bands? <laughs> um, I can't remember. Uh, I'm not sure where the, the name Bothy band came from, to my shame. I don't know who it was. It, it was one of the band. It could have been Michal O'Donnell uh, or Triana. Uh, <laughs> or Matt or Paddy. Or, or yeah. Or, <laughs> um and uh, as for Moving Hearts, we were just tossing names around between us. And uh, again, I can't remember wh- which, you know, who came up with it. Uh, it was just a, we had a long list. We had a list of about 25 names. And eventually we boiled it down to Moving Hearts, which is a good name. And, you know, it's, it's funny. The name, the name of a band, when you think of it first and when you suggest it first, you know, it's going to sound absolutely stupid. <laughs> and it's only that... Like after time, the band grows into the name and the name becomes the band, if you know what I mean. I remember the first time I saw the the name The Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. I thought it was really naff (laughs) because of the pun, you know. Yeah. (laughs) It's sort of Mickey Mouse name. (laughs) But, But in fact, hey, you know, all it takes is like two of their fantastic songs and suddenly the Beatles it's the Beatles yeah yeah and Mickey Mouse was big as well yeah that's right (laughs) (laughs) you moved on then of course you seem to be on the move constantly if a band sort of gets to one space or one place you seem to be always looking for the next sort of development but you went Mm. then with a group called LAPD which was almost a trip Mm. back in time for you Mm. why was that that's true well it was really that the the uh, the most recent, uh, if you like, uh, uh, iteration of Planxty uh, that we had in the early noughties, that uh, it sort of uh, closed down again and uh, went off the road. And so uh, Andy and Liam and myself were, uh, well, like Christy had sort of, if you like, withdrawn um, and uh, Andy and we, you know, we were idle for a while. We we're all doing different things too, but we decided to, uh, uh, you know, to actually 
you know, put it back on the road. Like it was a, it was an opportunity to play together, which we loved. And uh, um, uh, some opportunity arose to do a gig at a festival, I'm sure. And uh, the bold uh, Paddy Glacken uh, was enlisted. And Paddy and I had been playing together for years, ever since, uh, well, I mean, Paddy was actually in the very first uh, uh, manifestation of the Bothy Band. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so LAPD, Liam, yeah. Andy, Paddy, mm -hmm. and yeah. Donald. So just there in case people are wondering what they... Uh, yeah, they, so <laughs> I wonder who taught that name, but there you go. Uh, you moved on to Usher's Island, which was kind of... Uh, would be similar enough in its sound, certainly, to the Botty Band, maybe a more modern version of it? I suppose, yeah. Um, yes. There were, uh, diff different in character, all right, but... Uh, 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 an interesting band. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things about it was that it, there were two bazookis, which is uh, like John Doyle and myself. Uh, even though John John's bazooki was a single string and a six string, uh, but essentially tuned like basically like a bazooki. And uh, what a player John is. Anyway, and and also like I mean me put the pin in my collar to keep up with them <laughs> All right. no and, and the rest of us too <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's that's true actually yeah he's a beautiful musician uh, oh, no question amazing. um but I'm, I'm looking at just how your music has developed you've done all this production and all that sort of work as well mm. but you looked very comfortable to me anyway when you were played with uh, zoe conway and martin o'connor at Tradfest, and there you're kind of back to the bare bones of the music almost well, that's true. I have to say, I love playing with those two people, and uh, it's a, it's a the the nice thing about the that combination is that there's no what would you say, no elaborate arrangement needed, because I'm the only accompanist in that situation, and so it's not exactly carte blanche, but. Uh, um, uh, Martin and Zoe get on with the uh, with the melody playing, and uh, I supply the the accompaniment. So it's it's a uh, it's a very sweet situation. Making it sound also simple, there, Donald. But uh, uh, the musicianship <laughs> that's displayed by Martin and Zoe is quite something else. So to be able to kind of work your way around what they're doing has to be challenging. Yeah. It certainly is. Yeah, they're two uh, maestros. They're two virtuosi. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Very few people play like the pair of them. No, absolutely uh, astounding yeah. musicians. Now, of course, yeah. you don't. Your time hasn't been spent uh, just playing in different groups. But my God, you'd wonder where you had time to do anything else. But you became a producer along the way. What was it? Just from working with your own groups that kind of drew you into that circle? Um, I suppose it was again a kind of a default in that uh, I, I was interested in what was going on in the control room, and. Uh, I'm not very technically minded, but I I was a, fascinated by the possibilities of you know changing the sound of things, making something sound bigger, making it sound smaller, and uh, the 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 whole idea of mixing as well, you know of of um, and th it, that became a challenge, um, to to get uh, the most out of a studio recording. So it, it, you know it was kind of I I graduated towards the the control room I'd always be the first in there to hear what, what we'd yeah. just done and uh, then I'd be watching what the engineer was doing 
I mean, after all of that, I'm still, um, I'm, I'm not a, a qualified engineer and, and, you know, I've very, I've only got a very vague idea of what mics to use where and stuff like that, you know. I, I always left that to the engineers and just concentrated on listening and enjoying. Yes, the old question, do you want to come in for a listen, lads? <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does, it does <laughs> I get the impression, mm. though, that you, like, with all the different people that you worked with, that you enjoyed your experience with Frank Hart in particular. Ah, yes, yeah. Well, Frank, we yeah, we got on great. I mean, we, Frank recorded an album for, for Mulligan back in the early days. And... Um, I, I mean, Mulligan was, was really what, uh, if you like, uh, established me or got me thinking about myself as a producer. And again, it was a kind of a default, you know, it was sort of, uh, it wasn't that somebody had to do it, but uh, it, it sort of took care of itself. And uh, also Michal was interested in that too. So we, we uh, worked together. But uh, uh, anyway, um, when Frank... Uh, recorded we hit it off and frank is a very plain talker and uh, uh also you know very what would you say forceful is the wrong word but knew what he liked uh wasn't very articulate about the music itself but you know he he knew what he wanted to do and uh, uh so after we had recorded that first album there was a, a lapse of it. it must have been like 10 or 12 years before we got together again. And uh, he he approached me about uh, recording another album and uh, I was delighted. And we just worked together. We're very happy working together in the studio. I mean, Frank, you know, we'd be shouting at each other, you know, and <laughs> cursing at each other. <laughs> but uh, but it was all in in, uh, in, in good spirit. Yeah, he was um, an iconic figure in, in the world of uh, folk singing, for sure. But, of course, you did mm. uh, spend a lot of time working with Christy in studio as well. But you this were is used true. to his company. That's right, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I was delighted to, to get the opportunity to, uh, you know, to produce and to put forward ideas. It took a long time for me to get off the ground as a producer. The first time I was asked to produce, uh, and for the first year or two, I didn't really know what a producer was, <laughs> but I never let on. <laughs> that was a kind of quality control, you know, but no, um, there was more to it than that. But it took a while before I could actually bring myself to intervene and to uh, make arrangement suggestions and, uh, you know, to influence, if you like, what a person was doing in their recording. But once I got going at that, it, it got easier. And uh, you know, I, I began to sort of look at the task of production more creatively, you know. Um, so I'd, I'd be automatically, if you like, considering possibilities when somebody uh, sang a song or, you know, started playing. So it, uh, I, got, I got into my stride after a while. Uh, and you took your studio experience certainly outside of the traditional or folk scene. You worked a bit with Kate Bush, Mark Knopfler, people like that, Elvis mm. Costello. Yes, yeah, and I was delighted to. I mean, uh, I I got to work with Kate through uh, the world Bill Whelan, um, and uh, uh, she she was in Windmill Lane recording her album. I think it was The Hounds of Love, 
um, and uh, that w that was such a lovely experience. It was great to do that. She's a lovely woman, um, very good natured, and uh, took life easy. Just uh, uh, it it was a pleasure being in the same place. There was no stress, and uh, the results were very good. As a result of that, you know, that's really nice to hear. Actually, oh, yeah. uh, just to, when you you know working with a with a world famous star like that, to hear that there was such comfort in her company. Oh yeah. No, yeah. the last time actually, I well not the last time I met you. Maybe the last time I met you actually, you were just in the middle of producing another CD. This time it was in County Clare, and it was the <laughs> full circle here, Donald, because you were working with the Kilfenora Cayley Band. Ah oh, yeah yeah, which was a joy. I have to say, um, and that was it. Was John Lynch who approached me, John who who leads the Kilfenora, and uh, um, I was really pleased when he asked me. Uh, and you know, I I hadn't. Uh, it was, again, it was a learning curve for me. Um, I hadn't really, if you like, gotten very close to Cayley music before that. I absolutely knew what it was and all that, but and uh, you know, that I mean that the the ultimate object of of Cayley uh, band music is for dancing. So uh, if you like refining what they're doing and uh, putting different shapes on it is, you know, it's not that it'd be counterproductive, but that uh, it could be beside the point, you know. Yeah, I get you. So, so this is, uh, you know, again, I was learning, but uh, I got great encouragement from the band itself and and from John. And uh, I did take the opportunity to, to, if you like, try and uh, introduce some color and some, you know, uh, variation in what was going on without interfering with the dynamic or with the drive, which is the crucial thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it was such a pleasure, a great bunch of people. John was a, a, like a great man at the helm uh, for keeping everything together. And uh, his brother Jerry, the late Jerry Lynch, was on that album and sang two songs on it. And uh, that was a great pleasure. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I spoke with John recently and he expressed his, his, uh, how pleased he was that Jerry got to do that mm. with the band. Yeah. A stunning singer uh, was Jerry for sure. Yes. Uh, very sad that he passed away, but and, and a wonderful yes. man. And I'm sure Jerry himself would have got so much out of that, uh, working you, with you uh, or with the Kilfenora. Uh, you'd uh, you'd you'd know where you stood anyway. John is a fairly straight talker. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah but uh, <laughs> uh, we hit it off. Oh no! Because uh, you were right in. Like yeah. I met you in Kilfenora actually at that time and. You know, hmm. In that village, you know that it's what the traditional music means there. You know, it's it's amazing how deep rooted it is in that community. That's true. Yeah, I remember that that occasion well, Kieran, and uh, I was aware of the fact that I was I was on hallowed ground, if you like, <laughs> you know, because of of the uh, the history of the Kilfenora. I mean, illustrious, mm, hundred years yeah. on the go. Yeah, yeah. Um, your work continues, by the way, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. Just wanted to mention, maybe uh, you got an honorary doctorate from Trinity College, but you were also made a member of Estana. What does that mean for you? Uh, it's a, it's a I take it as a huge honor. Um, uh, like Estana is a bunch of artists, uh, originating artists, 
And that's that is, I suppose, people who write things or who paint things or who make things or, you know, whatever. And new members are proposed by uh, extant members, by people who are members themselves. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, considered a, a, a big honour to be part of it. Were they aware of your thing. earlier skill as a gold and silversmith? Uh, I don't know if that was uh, on the CV. <laughs> That's one to add for them anyway, for sure. Uh, we've been asking people here, mm. Donald, on the podcast about what they've been doing during lockdown. And this mm. takes me back to you and studio work. You've been fairly busy, but you said to me earlier, you, you're lucky enough in a lot of ways. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I've... I've uh, I have a, a sort of a, a work situation which uh, I can, uh, which keeps the shape on my day, and uh, I have various bits and pieces to work at. Uh, I have a backlog of of, um, I suppose, commitments or obligations or things that I've undertaken to do, which I'm, you know, you would think that I would have gotten through them with nearly a year of lockdown, but I haven't. Uh, it's it's quite amazing. Um, how time flies past, but uh, yeah, there are various things that I'm at. I'm I'm uh, writing uh, tunes bit by bit. Uh, I'm doing a project with um, a taiko ensemble from Japan uh, at present, and that'll be, uh, uh, I suppose, it'll be broadcast in Japan sometime in February. So uh, th these things are are uh, you know they're lined up there and I'm digging away at them. And is there any sense of the Irish tradition crossing over with that project that you're working on? Um, the nature of what I've done for that is is uh, uh, two tunes. One is a reel and the other is a slip jig. Um, and even though that they, they, what would you say, they don't stay within the modes of Irish music, it, it's there at its heart anyway. And the, I mean, the main voice in the in the playing of them will be the Elam pipes. So that's, and there'll be a lot of, uh, I suppose, other um, variations of and counter melodies uh, too, and that kind of thing in the music as well, you know. Donald, our final question, and this is uh, one that we have put to everybody that has been with us here on the podcast. By the way, before I get to it, you will be playing at Tradfest, of course. Andy, <laughs> yourself, Moraid and Triana. That's right, yeah, yes. And that looking happens, forward course, to that. at the end of January. That's online for people, but we certainly look forward to that. Uh, recorded in the beautiful St. Patrick's Hall uh, in Dublin Castle here. But the other Brilliant. question we're asking people, Donald, is uh, if, you're, like, if, if you're listening to music just for, for your own pleasure, let's say what you've done, maybe even during lockdown, if you just want to get away from everything, what have hmm. you been listening to? What would you recommend people listen to? Oh. Hmm. Uh, that, that's that's a very difficult question. Let me see. <laughs> I thought you were going to sing it for me, there, Donald. Do you get? Yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm losing you. You're breaking up. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, one thing that I did recently was uh, I went online and um, I I started. Uh, looking for a radio station. I was looking for an East European radio station. Eventually I got a Greek one. So I turned that on every now and again and I hear this sort of torrent of Greek music. A lot of it is clarinet, but it's brilliant. 
and it's a great kind of a, a relief or, or you know a change change is as good as a rest um as to what to listen to my god well, I'm trying to think of what I'm, well andy irvin's just put out a, a brilliant album uh, and it's actually it's volume two of um old dog long road and uh, it it spans his uh, his musical life from 61 to 2015 and uh, it's got some brilliant tracks on it and uh, not referring to the ones that i'm on now <laughs> but i'm on one or, i'm on one or two and actually there's a song that andy had famously in the early 90s never tire of the road i think that would probably apply to you as well well, indeed, yeah. Well, I thought that that song uh, come back to bite him in the arse, but it hasn't yet. <laughs> no, it hasn't, for sure. <laughs> thanks so much uh, for joining us on the podcast. Ah, thanks very much, Kieran. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Tradfest podcast. For more information on Tradfest, go to tradfest.ie. Tradfest is brought to you by the Temple Bar Company.